0: You're going to be reformed and believe in republication. Okay, it has to be administrative. Okay, <clears throat> okay. I've tried to be very fair to our brothers on the wrong side. I mean the other side. Okay, now, uh, or as as Phil would like to call them, the ones that are are too smart for their own good. But I I, I think there's a better way to understand this covenant. Okay. Um. Rather, I, I side with the Puritans on this one, as does most of the Reformed community. Okay? <clears throat> the Mosaic Covenant is an extension of grace that God showed in the covenant with Abraham. Okay? And that's the way that we are going to flesh out this covenant. Okay? We are going to use our four points from that general overview that I mentioned a little while ago. Um, we're going to look at how God fulfills these promises to Abraham. We'll see how this is fundamentally a covenant of grace. Full stop. Okay? Yes, the law is given. There is a there's an element of obedience here, but this covenant is an extension of the covenant made with Abraham. Okay. In fact, we're reminded of God's grace literally a verse before the, the, the first commandments are spoken. Okay? Like we've talked about before, this is this is important covenantal continuity going on here. Okay? And, and if you miss it or you underplay the significance of that continuity, yeah, you're, you're likely to end up in the Repub world. Okay? Now, before we jump into the covenant, there's one last topic I want to address, and that's God's name. Okay? Now, remember when I told you last week to keep Genesis 17:1 in your back pocket. Okay? Genesis 17:1 is where God introduces himself as, to Abraham as El Shaddai, right? God Almighty. Well, here's why that's important, okay? For those who have studied God's name with me, this will probably sound familiar to you. In Exodus 3.14, this is where God introduces himself in a new way. In this covenant, God says, I am who I am. This is Yahweh, and this is God's covenantal name. Let me say that again. Yahweh is God's covenantal name. And there's two things I want to bring to your attention here. <clears throat> Number one is that his name is not properly understood. Um, I'm sorry, his name is not understood in its proper covenantal context until this moment. Okay, The people actually do call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, in Genesis 4.26, Genesis 4.26 says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Wait, so did they already know his name? They already knew Yahweh in Genesis 4? Well, sort of, kind of, not really. If you you want, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 3. We read there, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, that's Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So, God says, I gave them my name, but the people didn't know it. Well, we, we see that they, they did kind of know it back in Genesis 4. What's, what's going on here? Do we have a, a problem or a, a disconnect? With Scripture? No. No, not at all. The people knew his name, but they didn't understand it or comprehend it. Okay, They didn't understand or comprehend the personal, covenantal relationship behind that name. Okay? Think about Abraham. He died before he could see the covenantal promises truly fulfilled. right? But by Exodus, it's a relationship that's established over a period of time. By this point, God is fulfilling his covenant promises, and he's grounding those promises in his name. Look back at the end of verse 5 there. It says, I have remembered my covenant, therefore, go tell the people Yahweh is bringing about the covenant promises. And this people live to see these covenant promises fulfilled, to to an extent. And their children live to be brought into the promised land, right? And here's another thing to notice. Look, look back at verse 3. God says he did not make himself, quote, known to them, but now he is. That means there's something unique going on here, something God's never done before. So when we read God's name in Exodus 3 and the people hear it in light of the covenantal promises being fulfilled, the gears start turning. The light bulb goes on. They begin to recognize God for who he really is, as should we. Yahweh is the covenantal redeemer for his people. Here's the other thing about this. God's name can be understood as I am or I will be, okay, when you look at it in the Hebrew. And what does that mean? Is God saying, well, I'll be with you in about 15 minutes. There's somebody ahead of you in line, right? Right? No, no, of course not. Remember where we are in Exodus, right? The people aren't doing so hot under Egyptian rule at this point, okay? When God tells Moses his name, he's reminding Moses and the people of his covenantal promises, okay? He's reminding them of his love and his care for them. In the name of Yahweh, God tells us, I am self-existent, creator, sustainer, immutable, eternal, and I will continue to be all of these things. This isn't true of you and me, right? You know, when you're, when you're courting someone, right? You don't see the flaws, right? Before you get married, you think your, your spouse is always going to be intelligent and forgiving and beautiful and, and wonderful, right? Then you get married, right? And even the way they brush their teeth angers you, Right? <clears throat> But I mean, ask Laura. I'm sure she'll tell you I'm always beautiful and intelligent and forgiving and wonderful. That never changes. Of course it does, right? But not so with God. You always know what you're going to get with Yahweh, right? You always know where you're going to stand with Yahweh. He's never going to pull the rug out from under you, okay? And he's revealed one of his most comforting character traits in his name. Turn back to Exodus 3 real quick. Look at verse 12. Exodus 3 verse 12, he said, but I will be with you. Moses isn't the only one who needs to hear that, believer. Yahweh is with you always. You are his child and he will never leave you or forsake you. Okay, let that sink in for a moment. All of this comes just from his name. No matter your circumstances, Yahweh. Yahweh is with you as his covenant people. Now, without further ado, let's study one of the most, probably most controversial covenants in the Bible, the Mosaic Covenant. And we'll begin by looking at the Exodus. And, of course, in order for there to be an Exodus, you need people, right? So let's first begin by looking at the growth of Israel. Uh, Flip back a little bit further in your Bibles. Let's uh, start in Exodus chapter 1. I want to begin uh, looking at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So that would be the people of who? Oh, Israel. Right, that would be the people of Jacob, the man who wrestles with God. That would be Abraham's grandson, are increasing greatly. The land is filled with Abraham's offspring, just as God had promised. Abraham only had one son through Sarah. He didn't live to see these promises fulfilled, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen, right? This is the beginning of the promises in the Abrahamic covenant coming to fruition. Abraham is becoming the father of many nations. It is becoming impossible to number the stars at this point, right? Now, there's something else we need to take note of here. God's plan of redemption has not changed. Okay? Remember, how does God primarily grow his church? Through the family. And this has been true all the way back to creation. The re- uh, requirements and blessings of the creation order remain the same. Be fruitful and multiply. And we see that language repeated here in verse 7. In fact, it's, it's a major theme in this chapter. It's, it's restated several other times in several other places. So we, we have here covenantal continuity, not just with the Abrahamic covenant, but with this language. We have continuity going all the way back to Genesis 1. In fact, the growth of Israel continues even under Pharaoh's nose, who commands two midwives right to kill all the male-born Hebrews. And, of course, these lovely Hebrew midwives feared God more than man and essentially very respectfully told Pharaoh to go take a hike, right? Because when Pharaoh comes back and asks why they let all the male boys live, they lie. And and they said, these, these Hebrew women, they're not like these dainty Egyptian women. Man, they're, they're beasts. They're, they, they give birth before we can even get there. They sit on the birthing stool, and, and then they're done. I, I don't know what to tell you. They're pumping them out. All right. And I, I love what it says in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. He blessed them. Right? Despite Pharaoh's wicked plan, God sovereignly uses these women to not only protect his people, but continue to multiply them as well. Right? God's sovereignty is all over this chapter as well. Now, flipping over to chapter 2, look down at verse 23. I actually want this to, to really be our main focus here. Everything we've looked at in Exodus up to this point has, has really just been teeing us up for these verses. Okay? This is the, the prologue, for lack of a better term, of the Exodus story. Okay? This is going to tell us why God will lead the people out of Egypt. Okay? And the Exodus is what's going to really kickstart this whole thing. It's the very reason the people are in the desert, that they're out Mount Sinai, that the Mosaic Covenant is administered in the first place. Okay, so it makes sense that we would uh, that we would look at this and start here. I'll get my Bible here. I've got a little bit of extra reading to do on this one. All right, starting in verse twenty-three. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, in these verses, we learn quite a bit, and all of it is related back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. Notice three very important things here. Number one, Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Okay, Wow, it's as if God said that was going to happen. Dare I say prophetic. Genesis 15, 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years. The children of Abraham are in Egypt. They're in a foreign land. And they're slaves under Pharaoh. They're servants. They're afflicted. They cry out to God for help. And what is his response? This is our second thing. God heard their groaning. And we know from the Abrahamic covenant that not only does God hear their groaning, but that he ultimately will deliver them out of their bondage. Genesis fifteen fourteen. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Here's our third thing that we need to notice. God remembers his covenant with Abraham. This is arguably the most important thing we read here and the most important piece of text in understanding the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? Moses could not be any clearer that everything that's about to happen in the rest of this book is in response to God's promise to Abraham. The redemption of Israel from Egypt is rooted in God's prior covenant commitments to Abraham. And notice, the people cry, but that's not what God remembers. He remembers his covenant with Abraham. And then we read in verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and he knew. He understood their plight. He moves with kindness and compassion. And we are to understand that, again, God is about to do something big here. This is explicit covenantal continuity between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic Covenant. I I, I really cannot foot-stomp this enough. God hears his people cry out, and he recalls his promises to Abraham. This is is not a works-based system. This means that the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant is built upon the Abrahamic covenant, right? They, they can't, they, these can't be two separate types of covenants here, okay? Because Moses doesn't present them that way. Ligan Duncan says this, the Mosaic covenant doesn't contradict the covenant of grace. It extends it and expands it. I think that's well said. So now let's look at one last important detail before we get to the covenant itself, uh, and that's uh, the Passover, Turn with me to Exodus 11. So, part of God's response to save Israel, as we all know, is to send the 10 plagues to Egypt, right? Well, it's this 10th and final plague we need to spend some special time with because it serves in conjunction with the Passover. And if you note in our catechism answer, Passover is a specific way that uh, the covenant of grace is administered in the Old Testament. It undoubtedly points us to Christ, and there's some important theological truths that we need to take away from this. So, starting uh, Exodus chapter 11, starting in verse 4. I don't want to go verse 9. Okay. <clears throat> so Moses said, "Thus says the Lord: About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt." And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." And all these servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So here we have the tenth and final plague. The sparring match between God and Pharaoh is about to come to an end, right, as if It was even really a competition to begin with. But God is about to put Pharaoh down for the 10 count, right? By by killing every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Okay, now remember, this is a sinful, wicked people. And there is nothing unjust about what God is about to do. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to verse 7 here. Verse 7 says, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. <clears throat> this, the plague, this plague itself, is really meant to do two things. Number one, to finally force Pharaoh to release Israel, that they may go and worship God. But number two, to demonstrate God's loving kindness for his people. The distinction between his people. In our world, there, there often really isn't a very big separation between believers and unbelievers, right? In fact, when groups of people get punished it generally involves both the regenerate and the reprobate, right? However, this is meant to show show us that will not always be the case. In the end, there will be a very sharp distinction between Israel and Egypt, the wheat and the chaff, the sheep and the goats, right? We should never lose heart that our afflictions work for our salvation. In verse 7, God is saying that He has, from the very beginning said that these are my people, and I am their God. We see again the Lord's faithfulness in his covenant promises to Abraham, and he fulfills the same covenant promises to all of us, to those who are his through faith in his son. And I love the illustration of the dog in the beginning of this verse. Right? Dogs bark, they growl at everything. right? But God says not even a dog will growl against my people. Why? Because I stand as their faithful covenant protector. Man, that's powerful. And God makes the same promise to all of us as his adopted children. Okay? Now, of course, Pharaoh does not let Israel go. And we move into chapter 12, the very well-known Passover chapter. Now, for the sake of time, rather than read the whole chapter, which I think we should, but we're not going to, um, it's a great chapter. I'm just going to walk us through the events of the Passover and reference the scripture text uh, for you. Truthfully, again, this whole chapter is important, but we'll just look at specific portions of it for our own purposes. So, in the first few verses, uh, God tells Moses and Aaron, here are a list of instructions that I want you to give uh, to the people. Uh, this is for the people's protection. Each house must do the following. Okay, in verses five and six, <clears throat> excuse me, they're to sacrifice a male lamb without blemish at twilight. Just as the plague will result in the death of a firstborn in every male in Egypt, right in their house, so too will be the death in every Israel home. Except it's not going to be male children; it will be the sheep. Okay, there will be. Um, this death on their behalf. Verse seven, God says, smear some of its blood on the two doorposts. It shows this will show that the people are consecrated to the Lord, right? That they will be protected. It's also going to be a very graphic reminder um, in future the future sacrificial system in Leviticus. Okay. Uh, verse eight, God says, roast the flesh and eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. They eat unleavened bread. Because Israel is sent out of Egypt with great haste. They have to pack up their dough before it's leavened. Verse 10, burn up what remains. Um, Although the reason for this isn't explicitly stated, I think we can uh, safely say that this meal is holy. It's referenced as the Lord's meal. And it should be treated as such. Uh, Verse 11, God says, eat with your belt fastened, sandals strapped, and your staff in hand. This... Harkens back to the unleavened bread principle. Israel needed to be ready to leave quickly in the middle of the night. Okay, Now, in verse 14, God says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. So this moment, this day, is to be celebrated. So here we have instructions for the feast of unleavened bread. It's the last seven days. All of the leaven was to be removed from the home on the first day. No work was to be done. And if anyone did eat leaven, they were cut off from Israel. And we'll take a closer look at who is allowed to partake of this Passover meal shortly. But now at this point, we come to the, the plague itself. And in verses 29 through 32, the plague is delivered by God himself. By the Lord Himself, and He's referred to as the Destroyer in verse 23. Uh, this is meant to depict a, a terrifying and a powerful image. <clears throat> and every firstborn in Egypt was killed, uh, human and animal alike. No person was safe, no place was safe. Houses, dungeons, Pharaoh's kid, um, they, were, they were all killed. We read in verse thirty, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And this is what finally motivates Pharaoh to release Israel. Uh, I mean, you just you got to imagine the most most powerful nation in the world today, right? Wailing with a loud, audible cry in the middle of the night, because all of their firstborns are dead. And that's that's what we have here in Egypt, right? Egypt was a superpower at this point. And in the blink of an eye, God demonstrates how it's, it's not their generations who will be preserved, but the generations of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Israel will prosper no matter what this false god, Pharaoh, tries to do. So at last, the people leave, and that brings us to the Exodus. Now, there's two things I want us to note here. Look at beginning at verse 35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked thus they plundered the Egyptians so first of all i, I actually think this is kind of funny israel has got one foot out the door at this point egypt has just been wrecked and israel asks oh by the way can we have some of y'all's silver and gold while we're leaving. And Egypt is like, guys, just, just take it. Okay. And then you get that little statement at the end. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Right? Okay. But what makes this even more important is it demonstrates that God is faithful to keep his promises. Okay. In Exodus 3, God tells Moses at the burning bush. Um, this is verse uh, 21 and 20, uh, 22. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters so you shall plunder the egyptians but reaching back even further god promised abraham that his descendants would come out of egypt with quote great possessions that's genesis 15:14 okay and let me just say we can't hear this or see this in God's word, enough. Okay? The idea that God is faithful to keep his promises. I'd venture to say every one of us, at one point or another, has had something happen in our lives that has made us question that. Has made us question the truth of that. Okay? <clears throat> maybe it's happened in the past. Maybe you're going through it now. Okay? Okay? But no matter what it is, you need to hear that, that God keeps His promises to save you, to sanctify you, to work even the most difficult things for your good. Hey, never doubt God's covenant faithfulness to you as His child. Now, here's the other thing I want us to note about the Exodus. Okay? The salvation of God's people was never meant to be just for Israel. Look at verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. And look at, listen to verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Verse 38 is God blessing his people, and this represents a microcosm of what's to come. And what is that microcosm? Well, it's the fact that the gospel is not just for Israel. The gospel is for everyone who worships the triune God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's built into the Old Testament. Another way to say this is that God is saving Gentiles even now. A mixed multitude of people are leaving Egypt, not just Israelites. Even sojourners can eat of the Passover meal, but they must first be circumcised. They too must worship the Lord. How much time have we got? Yeah. Let's look at, uh, at that in a little more detail. Um, this is that uh, We're going to take a look at the institution of the Passover. This is verses 43 through 50. <clears throat> Here, uh, again, we get the institution of the Passover. And one of the first things we're told in verse 43 is that only the circumcised may eat of it. God says in verse 43, No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you circumcised him. And this is reiterated in verse 47, if a stranger sojourners with you, and he wants to keep the Passover, and he will keep the Passover, circumcise him. Okay? No uncircumcised may partake of the Passover. And the Lord solidifies this point, right? In verse 49, he says, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger, uh, stranger who sojourners among you. Okay, in other words, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, doesn't matter. There's one law. And that's God's law. It's applicable to everybody. You want to be a member of this covenant? You want to partake of the Passover meal? This is how you do it. Okay? But here's the question. Why was circumcision required to partake of Passover? Because it denotes covenantal membership. These requirements are necessary because of the mixed multitude language we read back in verse 38 participation in the feast that required would be crucial for Israel's life in Canaan okay they required that a person be identified as the Lord's people and how do you do that we well, have to have faith in God and you have to be circumcised and this is an excellent time to transition into looking at the New Testament and Christological correlations to that we got a little bit of time Well, yeah, okay, we'll do this part. So today we don't celebrate Passover, right? We have the Lord's Supper, and I don't want to do a deep theological dive into the Lord's Supper or sacraments, but we do need to understand the connection here. The Lord's Supper realizes this Old Testament sacred meal, and it inaugurates eschatological covenant table fellowship between God and his people. In Mark 14, Luke 22, we read of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we learn that it happened on the first day of unleavened bread, right? When they sacrificed the Passover lamb. And Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke 22:15. 15. But what is the Passover? Well, he then proceeds with the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we see the same pattern from Jesus that we did in the Exodus. We get, number one, we get the institution. Jesus says, here's how you do it. Number two, we get the actual event itself, right? They partake of the meal. They eat the bread, they drink the wine. And then the third, we get the commemoration. There's the command after the meal to do it repeatedly, to to, to commemorate what God has done. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. In Passover... This commemoration is done for the Lord to promise his presence and his blessing and for future Israelite generations to personally adopt this story of redemption as as their own, right? The Passover is not a mere memorialization but a a celebration of what God has done. Those who participate are rejoicing in Israel's redemption. This is an identity-conforming act. Similarly, in the Lord's Supper, this is a, a commemoration. Jesus is personally present to bless his people through his spirit, right? And his story of accomplished redemption is personally appropriated to his covenant people. Like Passover, the Lord's Supper is it's not a mere memorial. It's not just symbolic that looks back to his, his work on the cross. Yes, it, it, it is that in a sense, but it commemorates Christ's promise to bless his people. It's a fellowship and communion, Paul says, with the body and blood of Christ Jesus is the once-for-all substitutionary sacrifice of God's people. He is the Passover lamb. John the Baptist says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine. The whole point of the Passover is that the lamb dies for the firstborn son, Israel, God's people, so that they might live. Jesus dies as the perfect lamb of God that we might live, that, would, that we would be forgiven of our sins. Right, that we've been made clean and allowed to dwell in the holy presence of the Lord. Redemption is fulfilled in the new exodus through the one who gives life as a ransom for many. Jesus' death is the blood of the covenant, of the new covenant, and it's the basis for all the blessings of this covenant. As the sacrificial lamb, Jesus spiritually nourishes God's people through his body and his blood. And like the covenant blessings... Like the covenant signs, this meal has generational significance. Okay? Going all the way back to the Passover. Listen to what God says back in in Exodus 12. Okay? This is verses 26 and 27. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So, parents, when the elements are being passed around during worship and your child asks you, why, why do we do this? Don't shush them. You shed a single, solitary, proud tear. You wipe it and you say, that, that is a wonderful, covenantal question, my child. Okay? And you explain to them that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Okay? That he was sacrificed so our sins may be forgiven. Okay? The elements are a visual representation of the gospel. He nourishes nourishes us spiritually as we partake of His body and blood. Okay, very good. Now, that's probably a good place to stop. There is one last thing I wanted to briefly mention before we leave. Actually, yeah, let me go over this real quick and then we'll we'll call it quits. I want to look at uh, real quick at the signs and seals, and this is this is the last thing I want to mention before we get into before we leave the Passover and go into the actual establishment of the covenant. In chapter 12, um, take notice of what God says in verse 13. He says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So what does it mean that something is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace? Because this is going to become important the deeper we get into the sacraments. So, Because to, to say a sacrament right is a sign... Excuse me, is to say it is a symbolic action that represents all the blessings of the covenant of grace. To say a sacrament is a sign that seals those blessings is to say that sacrament delivers God's elect children the blessings of the covenant of grace. Okay? Think of it like this: a sign is what the sacrament is, a seal is what the sacrament does. These signs and seals are meant to distinguish. God's people from the rest of the world as his treasured possession. <clears throat> They're designed to bind God's people to his love, to his service. Okay? If you remember, we talked about this briefly uh, when we looked at uh, Abraham in Genesis 17 and, and circumcision. Okay? The covenant and the covenant sign are intricately linked. That's why the confession says in chapter 27 that in every sacrament there's a sacramental union. Okay, between the sign and the thing signified. Now, I, I'm not saying the blood on the doorpost is a, is a sacrament or anything, because it's not, but it is a, a sign and a seal. It's a sign that Israel was part of the Lord's people, and it also was a seal or a means to render the Lord's protection from the plague. Okay? Now, good, this wraps up the, the Passover. as a big section in, in the covenant, and uh, next week we'll turn our attention to the actual establishment of the covenant at Mount Sinai. Yeah, perfect. Okay. Does anyone have any questions? (laughs) (laughs) Does anyone have a statement that will not embarrass the speaker?
1: of wrath was the greatest being to be feared and trembled before. And Moses was sent to say, a greater God overrules you, let my people go. We don't see that in our modern English language, but that's the picture. It's so offensive. What God ordered Moses to do was absolutely offensive. But we also know that the Egyptians pride to great wealth. They needed that wealth to be buried with them, that they may buy passage into the next world. They needed their precious treasures to guarantee them safety into the afterlife. And what did God do? He plundered the Egyptians. Why? Because he wiped out their name. He destroyed their continuity. This is a true covenantal act that I believe we should stand in awe of. God works in marvelous ways. His wonders to perform. Let's really be encouraged by that. He is not just a God of promise and deliverance. He does so with profoundly mighty acts. He did that here. He does that to us in our lives every day. Thank uh, you. That
0: be <laughs> Thank you. Great. Any more any more questions or or comments? Any clarification or anything?
1: If you have a statement, it has to be better than that one.
0: <laughs> 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 the standard has been set. And I am the arbitrator and the always. All right, very good. Let me uh, let me pray for us. Our good and gracious Father, we thank you for this. Today we thank you for your, your covenant of grace that has been uh, revealed to us in the Mosaic Covenant. We pray that we would um, be good receivers of that grace. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who indeed is the spotless Lamb of God that was sacrificed for us. We thank you for your promises that are fulfilled in and through Him. Please be with us in our fellowship this morning as we uh, prepare our hearts for, for worship. We pray that our worship of you would be pleasing in your sight Um, We pray for our pastor. We lift him up to you as he brings your word to us. May we be good uh, receivers of that word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.